0: Today, on Categorical Imperatives, I will put an end to the stupidest debate in American politics. It's the one we have every election year. And if you think you know which one I'm talking about, eh, you're probably wrong. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am Lockean and Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. If you are new to this program, I want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events that relate to law, politics, and culture. Now, real, real quick here before we begin, I just want to take a second to invite you to subscribe to this channel. Uh, If you want to always catch my latest and my greatest, I do not put out content on a set schedule. Uh, Subscription is the best way to make sure you keep up to date. And if at any point along the way you feel like smashing that like button or leaving me a comment, question, suggestion, compliment, uh, flattery will get you everywhere with me. Uh, I would love to get your feedback on the material material I present uh, or just feedback on the show in general. So let's get to the topic for today. Now, when I talk about the stupidest debate in American politics, uh, it's easy to imagine that I am probably referring to the existential angst that most Americans are currently experiencing deciding between creepy Uncle Joe and Donald Trump in this competition to see which one is least likely to make voters throw up in their mouths a little bit when they walk into a voting booth and think that they have to pull a lever for one of them. All this, of course, while contemplating the kind of grim, meat-hook reality that in a nation of 320 million people, these are the two finest statesmen we have to hold up and to give the most important job in the world to. But this is not the stupid debate that I'm talking about.
1: What is the stupid debate that I'm talking about? Are we a constitutional republic or a democracy?
0: Now, every two years, following our national elections, the Democrats become indignant at the lack of what they call democracy in our elections. They insist that democracy means one man, one vote, which, if you ask me, seems actually pretty fucking sexist, but if they want to disenfranchise the value of women's votes, I guess they have the right to make their party a disgusting cesspool of fallow-centric patriarchy. I'll say, Democrats. Actually, let's just call it what it really is: electoral rape. I'll say, Democrats.
1: But I digress.
0: Now, uh, the Republicans. I uh, always respond to this, or at least one or two of them who think they're incredibly fucking clever, respond to this by saying, no, we're a constitutional republic, and democracies are the 51% imposing their will on the 49%. The Republicans accused the Democrats of favoring popular vote because it would advantage them in the election. The Democrats accused the Republicans of supporting the current system because it advantages Republicans when they vote. But... Since both sides are making their accusations within a political bubble of people who already agree with them, they both discount the other party's arguments prima facie. And then two years later, it's brainwash, rinse, repeat. Now, I will admit, there is something of a horrific elegance in the realization that every claim uh, that is made in that dialectic on at least an atomistic level, is technically accurate, while the sum of its parts undergoes a kind of ontological transubstantiation and and emerges in the aggregate as a wholly untrustworthy proposition.
1: But all I did was tell the
0: truth. Of course you did, but there's the truth and the truth. So what do I mean exactly by that? Well, it is technically true, individually, to make the following statements. Democracy means one man, one vote. Yes, it certainly can mean that. We are a constitutional republic. Yes, that is also true. A pure democracy allows 51% to impose their will on the 49%, also technically true. And the Democrats want to switch to a popular vote because it is politically advantageous to Democrats. Obviously true. And Republicans support our current voting system because it is politically advantageous to Republicans. Equally true. If all this sounds drastically overcomplicated, uh, that's really only because it's drastically overcomplicated. And I do not want to settle the debate. I want to end it. Now, the thing is, this continued bickering is more than merely useless. It has actually become detrimental to any notion of good governance. You are being presented with a false choice that feeds into the growing issue that we have in this country of politics they team sport. We should be supporting principles and not parties. In a war of ideas, we should be trying to win converts, not arguments. And we ought to always choose truth over our favorite personality. So, in this argument that isn't an argument, uh, something that many of you likely realize, and I'm sure many do not, is that constitutional republic or democracy is a completely false dichotomy. In some senses, they are both correct terms. In other senses, neither are correct, and in other contexts still, uh, one is incorrect and the other one is correct. Or at least, one is more correct than the other one. Uh, and this is the problem when a term that can mean any number of things relative to context is used in a seemingly absolute manner such as we are doing with these terms with uh, a complete lack of context, what happens is these words end up meaning nothing. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So, constitutional republic or democracy, thus applied, are not serious suggestions meant to be considered and debated. They both equate to something that Jonah Goldberg calls the tyranny of cliches. Cliches like these are a way to win arguments on the cheap, defending principles you haven't thought through or perhaps only vaguely support. And even under the most charitable of interpretations of the weaker sincerity of their beliefs when using these terms, It still doesn't matter because mounting cliches like these are a way to avoid arguments, not make them. But this disagreement has just become such a uh, complete ideological clusterfuck uh, that is in such desperate need of untangling. I I sort of feel like I uh, will have to, like so many Gordian knots, uh, dispatch this tangled mess in which both ends, and thus any logical starting point, are seemingly lost within the knot and needs to be undone, though in deference to Alexander of Macedon, I will be cutting through this knot in two rhetorical swipes. Because there are two fundamental arguments that need to be worked out. The first will be to show how and why, on a technical level, both sides are right. I then need to present the philosophical argument that both, shi- both sides are should be making when they engage in this non-argument. What is it really that is meant when people say we are a constitutional republic or a democracy? And in what ways are both sides deeper philosophical arguments right and wrong? Now the first part of this will be more of a synopsis of the argument via technical classification. Uh, And this is a part of it I don't want to get too terribly mired in uh, with this particular aspect. So uh, I am going to encourage everyone to check out the description below uh, for a couple great articles that I have linked uh, by a couple other fantastic uh, constitutional law scholars. I have one from Rob Nadelson and one from constitutional scholar extraordinaire Eugene Volokh. Both articles are from the Volokh Conspiracy legal blog, Uh, and I have another one as well from a gentleman named Sam Jacobs. Uh, That was posted at silverdoctor.com. Now, admittedly, uh, I am unfamiliar with both this website and this author, uh, but this article was shared with me. uh, And it was a really uh, interesting and well done article that looked at the changes that have been made to our electoral franchise since our Constitution's adoption in 1787. And it looks at how those changes have skewed our modern perception of what these terms constitutional republic, or democracy mean in any sort of debate. So, the words, uh, republic and democracy are often used to describe two different forms of government. And, as I said before, uh, this is really a false dichotomy. Uh, these words have historically been, uh, more capacious or perhaps uh, more ambiguous uh, than one might believe. And this holds true uh, in what I would roughly break down into three different ways of defining the terms, and that is, generally, technically, and historically. Generally speaking, a common definition of republic uh, to quote the American Heritage Dictionary is a political order in which the supreme power lies in a body of citizens who are entitled to vote for officers and representatives that are responsible to them. Now, we are certainly that. Again, from the American Heritage Dictionary, a common definition of democracy is government by the people, exercised either directly or through elected representatives. We are that too.
1: Now, Technically,
0: the United States is not a direct democracy in the sense of a country in which laws uh, and other government decisions are made predominantly by a majority vote of the people directly. Some lawmaking is done this way on the local level, uh, things such as local ballot referendums. uh, But uh, I mean, that is certainly direct democracy. However, what we are talking about there is really only a tiny, tiny fraction of all lawmaking that goes on in the country. And this is because we are a representative democracy, which, uh, just for the record, is a form
1: of democracy.
0: Now moving on to historically. Uh, Historically, the American form of government has indeed been called a democracy by leading American statesmen and legal commentators from the framing on. It is true that some framing-era commentators have made arguments that have distinguished democracy and republic, Uh, for instance, Federalist Number 10, uh, though even that first draws a distinction specifically between a pure democracy and a republic. Uh, This is the exact same distinction that I have been and will be continuing to draw, and it only later... uh, just start saying democracy uh, really is things for a sake of ease. Now, I will be returning to Federalist 10 in just a minute, uh, but uh, even in that era, the point is that representative democracy was obviously understood as a form of democracy alongside a pure democracy. For example, John Adams used the term representative democracy to uh, Described the United States government in 1794. Uh, So did Noah Webster in 1785. So did George Tucker in his 1803 edition of Blackstone, which for people who aren't familiar uh, with him, is considered the first great thesis on the American Constitution by an actual uh, American jurist.
1: And uh,
0: in his Blackstone, Uh, St. George Tucker, likewise, uh, uses the term democracy to describe what is clearly a representative democracy, even when the qualifier representative has been entirely omitted. And Thomas Jefferson often referred to the United States as a democracy. I just found one specific example of a place where he clearly wrote it down, uh, and it is on record, uh, and that is in an 1815 letter to John Adams. Likewise, James Wilson, who was one of the main drafters of the Constitution and one of the first Supreme Court justices, defended the Constitution in 1787 by speaking of three different forms of government uh, that he spoke of as being uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, and said that in a democracy, the sovereign power is inherent in the people and is either exercised by themselves or by their representatives. And Chief Justice John Marshall, who helped lead the fight in the 1788 Virginia Convention for ratifying the Constitution, likewise, defended the Constitution uh, in that convention by describing it as implementing democracy. No doubt, many people are going to point to what is known as Uh, The guarantees clause in the Constitution uh, that, among other things, says the United States shall guarantee to every state in the union a Republican form of government. Uh, That is found, as you can see, in Article 4, Section 4, Clause 1. How about that? I looked something up. These books behind me don't just make the office look good. They're filled with useful legal tidbits just like that. So, case closed, right? except not really, Uh, that one mention in the Constitution gives no further definition or context of what they mean precisely by a Republican form of government, and since those arguing for a constitutional republic uh, say that they are supporting it in deference to the Founders' vision of a republic, uh, where they believe they are using the term constitutional republic uh, in a way that is making an originalist argument, but that is only true if you make an originalist argument that gives deference to the founder's meaning. And, plainly put, anyone who says we are a constitutional republic, and by that means we are a constitutional republic, we are not a democracy because republic or democracy are mutually exclusive, binary choices, Uh, anyone who says that is necessarily applying a modern notion of what a republic is And if they are applying their own modern notion, they are rejecting the
1: Founders' meaning.
0: Now, the Guarantees Clause in Article 4 is clearly not meant to be a statement of the philosophical principles of what would eventually become uh, a system, a philosophical system, that is to say, that is known as American Constitutional Republicanism. Uh, But that case was yet to be made much less generally be accepted. So, Article 4 is referring to Republican government as a technical distinction.
1: And, in
0: 1787, any American, and I really mean every single one, who was reading that clause would have understood it as describing a republic within the taxonomy of political philosophies that come from the Enlightenment thinker Montesquieu in his seminal 1748 book, The Spirit of the Laws. I, I really mean this, the importance of this book in shaping our government cannot be overstated. When one reads through the notes of the debate, that took place during the Constitutional Convention of 1787, you hear one name invoked over and over and over again by both the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists alike, both of them trying to legitimize their uh, their position by comparing and aligning it with Montesquieu's description of a republic. They were doing this with Montesquieu very much the same way that we, WE! Hi, the royal we, you know, the editorial I dropped off. The The same way that we uh, will align uh, with the country's founders uh, and our constitutional framers when we are debating this as a matter of law or political philosophy, uh, like, in fact, I will be doing momentarily uh, when we dive into uh, Hamilton and Madison's revision of the meaning of republicanism in the Federalist Papers. Now, Montesquieu, in his book, uh, posited three different uh, basic types of uh, government in his political taxonomy. Those were monarchy, despotism, and republics. And as you can see, he split republic further into two subclasses, uh, aristocratic and democratic. Now, aristocratic republics uh, were very much the classical republicanism uh, that was found in the Greco-Roman republics uh, that largely relied on two classes of people. The patricians, who were men of virtue and independent wealth, who were not in any way elected by the second class of citizens, who were known as the plebeians, which made up the bulk of the population. But. Even the classical republics had some democracy, and Montesquieu's second taxonomic class of republican government was democratic republicanism, in which the aristocratic classes of citizens uh, and the popular rule of direct democracy that were more staples of the classical republics uh, were replaced with a democratic republic which was more egalitarian and which replaced some Of the classical republic's direct democracy with representative democracy. But where the legislative branch was kept under local and popular control, uh, and where government was kept geographically much closer to those they represent. Uh, And this was done to provide access to your representatives which was meant to allow transparency in lawmaking and to make it much more likely that representatives will be kindred spirits with those they represent. And democratic republics, such as Montesquieu postulated, and the anti-federalist advocated required a communal sense in government, uh, where both the people and their representatives had to be virtuous citizens and had to be demonstrably civic-minded it also required uh, a, a homogeneous society where all values were shared by the entire community. And really what is being proposed uh, in some ways seems to be very much in line uh, with Jean-Jacques Rousseau's theory of the general will. Uh, I've got a lot to say about Rousseau's general will. Oh, it's so terrible. Um, but that's, that's a discussion for another time. Let's stick with Montesquieu for today. Really, this is all to say um, that at the time of the Constitution's drafting, the Guarantees Clause of Article 4, if it was given any specificity in that uh, term of interpreting it along the founder's line, it would likely encompass the anti-federalist vision of Republican government, which is to say, Montesquieu's Democratic Republic. Now, to be sure in addition to being a representative democracy, the United States is also a constitutional democracy, which is a government in which the courts uh, restrain in some measure the democratic will. And, if you want to get really technical about it, uh, the United States is not only also a constitutional republic, uh, indeed, really, the United States might be Uh, most accurately labeled as a constitutional, federal, representative democracy. But, where one word is used, with all the necessary oversimplification that that will necessarily entail, democracy and republic both work. Indeed, since direct democracy, which again, uh, a government in which all or most of the laws are made directly by popular vote, would be entirely impractical given the number and complexity of laws uh, that pretty much any state, much less a national government, would be expected to enact. So, it is unsurprising that the qualifier representative would often be omitted, because practically speaking, representative democracy is the only democracy uh, that could work and did exist on a state or a
1: national level.
0: Now, to put this another way, uh we can say we are a republic and a democracy because a democracy is like cash, uh, and lots of other words too, really. But uh, how is a democracy like cash? You are likely asking yourself, Well, if you pay cash in a store, what does that mean? It means you are paying with bills and coins rather than with a check or a credit card. But if you buy your house for cash, does that mean you are showing up with a briefcase full of bills and coins? Uh, Unless you are in some peculiar line of work, and likely, uh, I would say probably a legal line of work, you're probably not doing that. Cash, like so many words, draws its meaning from context and from contrast. Uh, What it is being distinguished from. Cash in some context means not checks. Cash in other contexts means not borrowed money. Likewise, when the people in the framing era were discussing popular government, uh, as opposed to a government in which the bulk of the people had no voice, they often used democracy or simply democratic to mean not monarchy or despotism or aristocracy, uh, with the prefix demo uh, referring to popular control, uh, what would become Lincoln's government of the people, for the people, and by the people. But, when they were discussing representative democracy, as opposed to direct government, they often used democracy or pure democracy to mean not representative government, with the demo prefix referring to a a popular decision-making. And the same is so today. America is a democracy, uh, in that it is not a monarchy or a dictatorship. Now, certainly some people claim that it is too oligarchic, uh, in which case they are saying that America isn't democratic enough. But again, uh, they are simply distinguishing between democracy from uh, oligarchy. America is not a democracy in the sense of being a direct democracy. So, now that we have a good understanding of how these terms In their various contexts are to be used uh, so that they can be used to have a constructive discussion and debate rather than uh, as dialectical shortcuts to win an argument without having to actually make an argument we need to discuss where both sides have valid points to make and where both points completely wander away from any kind of enlightening discussion and simply become tools for ideological entrenchment with those whom you already agree Uh, and as weapons to be wielded against people with a kind of ideological aggression against the people you already disagree with. Now, we will be doing this by examining what is often called the Great Debate. This is the debate between the advocates and the opponents of the proposed system of government that was created. Uh, This is crucial to understanding why we ended up with the Constitution that we have. Now, uh, a debate many people, including many people who claim to be carrying on the framers' original meaning uh, when they talk about this topic, are entirely unfamiliar with. And indeed, uh, which a number of public figures arguing for such changes will outright misrepresent. Understanding what is now known as American constitutional republicanism is a necessary prerequisite to any discussion of the constitutional government that was the end result, which is itself a necessary prerequisite to a discussion in which changes to that constitutional government uh, may be the end result. And the greater goal here, though, will be to illuminate the original foundation of our nation's founding moral philosophy that was the end result of this great debate that took place in 1787 and in 1788 over ratification of the new Constitution. We will focus on the most profound intellectual and philosophical levels of the controversy, centered on the competing Republican vision held by the Constitution's proponents, who were generally known as the Federalists, and its opponents, who were genuinely called Anti-Federalists. Now, this philosophy that is known as American Constitutional Republicanism, uh, we will not be looking at arguments over details of the Constitution itself, but rather, the Great Debate took place between two fundamentally conflicting visions of a healthy republic and a healthy republican civic life. Now, a reconsideration of the Great Debate over our true form of government uh, provokes us. To reenact for ourselves some of the most powerful arguments for and against our constitutional order. Such rethinking of the pros and cons of our system odd does indeed pose some risk of being politically destabilizing, but is absolutely necessary for genuine intellectual liberation. So, for the remainder of this episode, we will be doing much as T.S. Eliot recommended when he said, We shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. And the deepest reason why it is so important that we reenact this old controversy is because Americans live within a cultural horizon in which our constitutional system is largely taken for granted. Now this is a healthy thing for our political life because this uh, means that we have a broad consensus on basic principles, which provide the stability and agreement among citizens necessary for a republic to function
1: well. For this political good, however, we do
0: pay a serious price in terms of our genuine intellectual freedom. This consensus means that we are not usually challenged by deep criticisms of our constitutional order as a whole. We thus are not impelled to rethink the arguments for the basic principles and goals of our system, which puts us in danger of becoming passive, unthinking creatures of our system. We can remain unaware of the deep questions and serious doubts that can be raised about our constitutional order. Indeed, uh, this means that we are not aware that such deep questions and serious concerns were actually raised among the founding generation. That's the meaning of our Constitution with, ch- with its far reaching implications as it was thought and articulated and elaborated in response to such serious challenges. We don't know how much of our Constitution uh, thinking was forged in and through controversy, and thus draws its very strength from these controversies. This invites and stimulates controversy in the light of the original great debate, and thus will be the means to liberate our mind. By, enac- by reenacting excuse me, the great debate, we can begin to recover a perspective from which we can see the system as it was actually coming into being through the eyes of thoughtful proponents and opponents. These were people who did not, because they could not, take its basic principles and goals for granted. By listening to the Constitution's critics and how its defenders answer that criticism, we have better access to the deeply puzzling problems in the very nature of republicanism.
1: We can see the dangers that
0: it was meant to combat as well as uh, what it was not designed to be. What costs were paid and what limitations were prevented. But we must understand, it, understand the debate as it was understood at the time. First let's consider the position of those who rejected the proposed constitution. These are who are commonly known as the anti-federalists. And these are the people who favored a system of classical republicanism. Such as was the foundation of the ancient Greco-Roman ideal of a virtuous and highly participatory republicanism. And they were greatly influenced, uh, as were in all fairness to the federalists as well, uh, by the political theory of the classical republics uh, presented uh, through the writings of philosophers such as Aristotle and Cicero, and the ancient history of the same period that is found in the work of Thucydides, Plutarch, and Livy, and though we don't have time to go through those uh, elements today and specifically get into their actual teachings, uh, they really are uh, a very important uh, if we want to understand, and I would say especially uh, Cicero uh, and uh, Thucydides. Uh, so, if you like history, uh, I I would highly recommend you go try and check those out sometime. They are important. They're just way way too dense to get into here and today. But we also should remember uh, that their view of classical republicanism was greatly shaped by the certain uh, redefinition of the terms that came from the writings of Montesquieu, in which Montesquieu cast the classical republic in a way that is far less aristocratic than it actually was uh, in the Greco-Roman system, and offered a much more democratic and egalitarian republic. Montesquieu's importance in the Constitutional Convention and ratification debate genuinely cannot. Be overstated. He was the first person to postulate a republic kept in check through a separation of powers. That these powers are best separated uh, by those who write the laws, those who execute the laws, and those who interpret the laws. In other words, Montesquieu was the person who gave us a republic with a distinctive legislative, executive, and judicial branch. And these are just a few of the many uh, fundamental aspects of our government whose existence uh, is thanks directly to Montesquieu. And so he, um, it, uh, really more than anyone else, I would say, if you want to understand this great debate that went on, obviously you want to go back to the founders, and we're going to be getting into them in just a little bit here, but uh, really just as important, I would say, Uh, truly, as as reading something like the Federalist Papers to understand our Constitution, uh, is to read Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. Really, I've said this a couple times, but uh, Montesquieu and this book in particular and their influence on our system of government absolutely cannot be overstated. Uh, And this is something that everyone should try to take some time to understand if they are at all uh, interested uh, in the general, healthy continuation of our republic. Now, Montesquieu was also responsible for a lot of traits uh, of what were considered good government. Uh, when the Articles of Confederation, which was uh, sort of the constitution before our constitution, uh, when the Articles of Confederation were drafted, Uh, in which the Anti-Federalists had tried hard to retain in any new system of government uh, the uh, Democratic Republic uh, that is postulated as needing to be small enough that the people can assemble and take a more direct role in self-rule, where representatives remain under the close scrutiny by their constituents at all
1: times. Now that a pure democracy required
0: in all ordinary citizens an intense public spirit uh, and that one of the most important functions of such democratic communities was to, in their view, legislate a moral ethos uh, and that the citizens must conform to an egalitarian and communal civic virtue uh, as well as to demonstrate a certain level uh, of homogeneity of lifestyle among the populace. And this is the kind of republic that we have seen uh, or had saw uh, in Calvinist Geneva or in the Dutch Republic uh, from the 16th to the 18th century. Now, at the course of the failures of confederacies throughout history is the predominance uh, of the principle that the central government cannot legislate for individual citizens directly, but only indirectly through legislating for state governments.
1: And, here is where we get to uh, Hamilton and Madison and the Federalist Papers, where they are going to make a short
0: but pregnant argument for the decisive superiority of a massive republic whose government is far removed from the direct control of the people. They make this positive argument on the basis of a negative argument of the drastic inferiority of the small, homogeneous, and direct participatory democracies, which were the pole star of the classical republics. In Federalist Number no. 9, Hamilton wrote, It is impossible to read the history of the petty republics of Greece and Italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distractions with which they were continually agitated, and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept perpetually vibrating between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy. Hamilton makes the point, which will be backed up by Madison, that the classical Republicans, not least the Romans, were famous for their unending class warfare. This was between the rich and the poor, or as I mentioned before, the patricians and the plebeians, which is how they are referred to uh, in Federalist 70 when Hamilton discusses that aspect in great detail. Now in Federalist 9, Hamilton went on to say that when we look at the classic republics, what we find is that direct popular rule and participatory self-government lead more often, uh, not uh, excuse me, lead more often than not to fratricidal strife, rather than fraternal community. Now, Hamilton certainly uh, certainly does not deny that Greece and Rome uh, had been justly celebrated for producing great talents and exalted endowments but he goes so far as to contend that these individual virtues were not promoted but perverted by what he calls the vices of government that pervaded the classical republics. In the next letter, Federalist 10, uh, James Madison elaborates on what is at the heart of these vices, Uh, and that is what Madison called, following Hamilton, the violence of faction. It is this dangerous vice that is to be regarded as the mortal disease under which popular governments have everywhere perished. Hence, the friend of popular government never finds himself so much alone for their character and fate than when he contemplates their propensity of this dangerous vice, the violence of faction. And he said that everywhere republics perish under this vice. And the same fate, indeed, threatened the 13 states. It is the unsteadiness and the injustice with which a factious spirit has tainted our public administration. It is the chief cause of that prevailing and deep mistrust of public engagement. This creates an alarm for private rights across the country to every minority and individual. And he goes on to say in Federalist 10, by faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a minority or majority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse or passion, or of interest adverse to the rights of citizens, or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. The predominance of passions and interests that move some citizens in ways that threaten injury to the rights of other citizens or the good of the whole community our constitution is the first republic to create a system that is capable of breaking and controlling the violence of faction madison states that there are two means of curing these mischiefs of faction the one by removing its causes and the other by controlling its effects the first method removing its causes means somehow uh, preventing factions from becoming major factors in civic life. Uh, This first option is a despotic prevention of liberty that uh, that does not allow factions to even freely form. And this is obviously a choice that is out of the question for the Americans. The second one is the path of the classical Republican tradition.
1: Uh, this, as
0: I said, uh, comes from a uh, making the populace homogeneous in its outlook by creating a fraternal community, by giving to every citizen the same opinion, the same passion, the same virtues, and the same interests. Now, the proposed constitution uh, is, and this is a very radical statement when you consider it in the totality of uh, what he is talking about here, this new proposed constitution is based on the rejection of this second form as well as being impracticable. The new constitution rests on the proposition that any attempt to build a fraternal community of public-spirited citizens sharing the same outlook is simply against Human nature. As Madison puts it, the latent causes of faction are thus sown in the nature of man, and we see them everywhere, he says, brought into different degrees of activity according to the different circumstances of civil society. And Madison spells out in detail the reasons why factionalism or mutually exploitative group con- conflict is embedded in human nature. To begin with, and most generally, human reason is necessarily driven mainly, though not exclusively, by what Madison uh, calls self love, uh, which I'll just be referring to as self interest because it makes more sense, I think. Um, so, while uh, self interest takes many forms, there is one form that Madison spotlights above all others, and this is the economic form. This is expressed in a love of acquiring. Uh, as he puts it, uh, is ever more and more property. This limited, acquisitive drive is so natural to mankind that Madison goes so far as to declare that, in his words, the first object of government is to protect these faculties from which the rights of property originate. Then Madison observes that when the government succeeds in this prime purpose of protecting the acquisitive and selfish faculties, that the result is the emergence of what Madison calls different degrees and kinds of property, and thereby great economic diversity and great economic inequality among them. For Madison, now, uh, as these faculties of acquiring property are themselves unequal or unequally distributed, uh, and this continues to necessarily divide society into mutually opposed parties, or factions as he puts it, from the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property. The possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors who ensue a division of society into different interests and parties. But it is not only the competing economic interests that necessarily split human society into warring factions. Madison stresses uh, what is also called a zeal for different opinions concerning religion as the first in the list of differences of opinions that have always had this effect of creating factions of mutually hostile groups. This list includes zealotry for conflicting political opinions, uh, would also zealotry for all sorts of other opinions in theory and in practice, both. In addition, again, in Madison's words, uh, attachment to different leaders ambitiously contending for preeminence in power. All these different sorts of hostile attachments have been, Madison writes, uh, they have divided mankind into parties who have inflamed them with mutual animosity and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for the common good. Now here, Madison's presentation of human nature grows still darker when he adds that these are, in his words, so strong in this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. In other words, humans are by nature so eager to hurt one another and even to kill one another that they will start doing it at almost any excuse. And notice that Madison here Uh, never says, as you would hear from almost any other commentator at the time, that this is a sign of human sin or sinfulness or of the fall of man. Madison says rather that this is the fixed and unalterable nature of human beings, something for which humans are not responsible. He never suggests that the proper response or remedy is prayer Or hope of divine redemption, which are causes that are alluded to again and again uh, in the various uh, constitutions and declarations of rights, and even the Articles of Confederation itself. Uh, Really, all the great political documents that came before this constitution relied heavily on that.
1: But Madison goes
0: on to say we must not lead to the conclusion uh, that the view of humanity's social nature is a kind of Hobbesian trap of the war of all against all. His conception is much more complex and subtle in the first place. Madison here indicates that he is not ruling out some important role for what he calls enlightened statesmen, but he insists that such statesmen will, uh, as he puts it, rarely prevail over the immediate interests of one party uh, they may find in disregarding the rights of another or the good of the whole. This, then, in the second place, Madison makes clear actually a few papers later in Federalist 14 uh, that he has, uh, in, in this paper we have been reading from Federalist 10, abstracted somewhat from the communal or fraternal impulses that he's well aware do also manifest themselves in human nature. Uh, Impulses which he recognizes have some unusual strength among Americans. Echoing Jay's second Federalist paper, Madison writes in Federalist 14, Hearken not to the unnatural voice which tells you that the people of America knit together as they are, like so many cords of affection, can no longer live together as members of the same family, and can no longer continue the mutual guardians of their mutual happiness. The kindred blood which flows in the veins of American citizens, the mingled blood which they have shed in defense of their sacred rights, consecrate their union and excite horror at the idea of their becoming alien and rival enemies. So while Madison does not deny the existence of some deep and strong bonds of kinship, he does contend that, uh, in fact, such natural bonds are by no means strong enough to prevent the equally or more natural emergence of even stronger, mutually hurtful, factious competition. Madison returns to economic competition as the most powerful source of this natural mutual hatred and animosity that overwhelms kinship and public spirit. As he puts it, most common and durable source of factions have been the various and the unequal distributions of property, those who hold and those who do not have. There are creditors and debtors. There is a landed interest. There is a manufacturing interest, a mercantilist interest. A moneyed interest, and many lesser interests which grow up out of necessity in any civilized nation. Divide them into different classes actuated by
1: different sentiments and views.
0: The regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation and involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operation of government. Now, this last phrase here
1: uh, is pregnant.
0: And in fact, I'm going to go back here. The regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation and involve the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of government. I went back to that because this is arguably the most important phrase in the entire Federalist Papers. Because you see what it means, and it reveals the direction that Madison and this new kind of republic are going to take in their new solution to the problem of faction the spirit of faction, or what he even calls mutual animosity, is going to be accepted as routine, intrinsic, and even necessary as part of the American Republican government. Faction is going to be used as a primary tool to combat and control faction. The new American Republic will fight fire with fire. This system is rooted in a kind of judo throw, if you will, where faction will be used to check faction and the disease will return back upon itself.
1: The New American
0: Republic is the first republic in history that is frankly going to tolerate and even foster and even in some measure depend upon the promotion of faction. Mutually antagonistic competition among selfish groups seeking to exploit one another throughout society and inside the government itself. What classical republicanism sought to prevent or repress, the new American republicanism is going to employ as an engine of its energetic and its thriving. Madison's next step is to argue, but once we have admitted, This basic, uh, and really rather grim, truth, we have to realize that in a Republican form of society, or the majority having the preponderant power, when we are in a situation where the majority is the legitimate source of authority, the most serious danger is not from any minority faction, but rather from the majority when it becomes united as a faction. For since the majority has the greatest power and the greatest legitimacy, it can defeat in the long run or overawe, or check on a regular basis all minority factions. But who or what can check the majority? If or when it becomes a single united faction, which really, as the failures of the experiment of classical republicanism shows, is most likely and most pernicious when the majority, who are always the poorer, unite in resentment against the wealthier, who are always the fewer, and who proceed, often under the stimulus of demagogues, to put rights and properties under such threats that either the economy is ruined or the property class feels compelled to fight back in ruinous civil conflict. It, it, it. And this really is an argument uh, that cannot uh, be ignored for us right now in the present day. It is this problem of the majority faction that is the great problem of all past republics that has never before been solved. And this is why the cause of republicanism before this point had fallen into disrepute. So it is the solution of this problem of majoritarian factions, which Madison will state is the greatest object to which, uh, or inquiries are directed, and then Madison poses his key question, by what means is this object attainable? Madison immediately proceeds to give the answer in principle, one of two things, or both, At once must be made to happen. Either the existence of the same passion or interest in a majority at the same time must be prevented, or the majority having such coexisting passions and interests must be rendered by their number and local situation unable to concert and carry into effect schemes of oppression. Now, for either or both of these effects to happen, Hamilton says, we must emphatically avoid setting up what he calls a pure democracy. By pure democracy, I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. Or in such a pure democratic society, the assembled majority has direct political power and will easily coalesce into a united faction. Some degree of mob rule, guided by demagogues, is the all-too-common fate of direct democracies. And here we will see Madison contradicting a basic premise of the whole anti-federalist, classically-inspired republican vision. Madison is not denying that participatory democracy, where the majority has direct control over the government, fosters Republican liberty. He says, actually, much to the contrary, that the evidence of history shows that such democracies actually endanger this very Republican liberty, the liberty of the individual, and the rights of the minority through the tyranny Of the majority as a faction. What we must set up instead of democracy in the classic sense is what he now goes on to call a republic, by which I mean, Madison writes, a government in which a scheme of representation takes place. Madison then goes on to distinguish what precisely is the difference for him between a democracy and a republic, such as the Constitution is establishing. The two great points of difference between a democracy and a republic are, first, the delegates of the government in the latter to a small number of citizens elected by the rest. Secondly the greater number of citizens, and a greater sphere of country over which the latter republic may be extended. And this is the real heart of the new Madisonian Republican vision. The new constitution aims not at a confederacy of small democratic participatory republics, but instead at one large, extended, mass republic where the people never can assemble to govern directly. Hence, where the majority can never unite and become directly oppressive of minorities and of individuals. But this is more than an idea that the country's territories or population will be too large to physically assemble in one place. But more that the majority will be so diverse and so ribboned by conflicting factional interests that it will rarely share the same interests. And when it does, it will be very difficult in becoming aware of these shared interests. As Madison puts it uh, in his most important single statement, uh, that principally, this will render factious combinations less to be dreaded.
1: We must extend the
0: sphere and take in a greater variety of parties and interests. By doing this, you make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Or, if this common motive exists, it will be more difficult for those who feel it to discover their own strength and to act in unison with each other. Hence, he says, it clearly appeals that the same advantage a republic has over a democracy in controlling the effects of faction is enjoyed by a large republic over a small republic. It is enjoyed by the union of the states over a confederation of influences of factious leaders who may kindle a flame in their respective states, uh, where, for example, a religious sect may degenerate into a political faction in a part of the confederacy. But the variety of sects dispersed over the entire face of it must secure the National Councils from any danger from the source. He says, A rage for paper money, or for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or any other improper or wicked project less apt to pervade the whole body of the Union than a particular member of it in the same manner that such a malady is less likely to infect a particular county than it is an entire state. Now, Madison, in effect, uh, is standing the anti-federalist arguments right on their head in at least two major respects. In the first place, where anti-federalists follow classical republican uh, visions, uh, classical republican theory, you could say, seeking a homogeneity of the populace uh, and deplore a situation as uh, the anti-federalist writer Brutus lamented with the constant clashing of opinions and the
1: representatives. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow. Sorry. I got really lost there for a second. Uh, Okay. Excuse me. Um, Madison, in effect, stands the Anti-Federalist arguments on their head in at least two major respects. In the first place, where Anti-Federalists followed the classical Republican theory seeking a homogeneity of the populace and deplore a situation as Brutus lamented with the constant clashing of opinions and the representatives of one party continually striving against the other. Now, it is precisely that, this clashing against one another, uh, as Madison is saying, that is the key to retaining liberty, that, of course, uh, is a very hard thing for the Anti-Federalist to accept. As the Anti-Federalist writer who calls himself Sentinel wrote, If the administration of every government are actuated by views of private interest and ambition, How is the welfare and happiness of the community to be the result of such jarring adverse interests?
1: In the second
0: place, Madison has a fundamentally different proposal of how representation should work. Where the Anti-Federalists worried about distancing themselves from the people uh, and their control or worrying about the fact that he... Uh, that they would be representing such a vast number of constituents that actually, uh, in Madison's scheme, they cannot possibly know well or resemble and mirror. Madison says it is just such removal from those they represent uh, in large, diverse constituencies that are the keys to a safe as well as an effective representative government. Because if the government uh, and its representatives are few in number, each representing large popular districts, it is more likely that he will have to win election by appealing to a broad coalition with competing and compromising factions in his district. It is much more likely that he will represent a unified majority and If the representatives are, after being elected, fairly independent of the voters for a period of time, it is more likely that when they meet in the government with the other representatives that they will seek amongst themselves compromise and coalition to broker deals that make sure uh, that all laws represent a much broader portion of the populace. Well, that is going to do it for me here today. Uh, I want to thank you all so much for joining me here on Categorical Imperatives. Uh, Real quick, if you enjoyed the show, uh, again, I'd ask you to take a second and just subscribe to the channel. Uh, I don't put out videos on a regular basis. So if you like this uh, and you want to hear more videos of this sort, uh, please uh, take a minute and subscribe. and then, also, I always ask people, um, if you liked this episode in particular, if you would just take one minute and uh, share it with someone who you know, who you think might also enjoy listening to this episode, and help me grow the channel that way, I would really appreciate it. Uh, and if you hated today's show, uh, I would just ask that you take a minute and uh, share the show with one person you know who you think would also hate the show as well, because I'm a masochist, and your hate gets me off. But anyways, uh, for the next episode, which will be coming out soon, uh, we will kind of be continuing with this. Uh, We will not be looking so much at this uh, the, the greater ideal of American constitutional republicanism, but we're going to be taking what we talked about today, And looking at the Constitution itself uh, and considering how uh, these philosophies and these principles apply to particular parts of the Constitution, and then we are going to use that as well to take a look at many of the suggestions that people often make uh, when uh, at the end of elections when uh, they lose an election and they decide that uh, they want to change everything because of that, uh, whether they... Want to do away with the Electoral College, uh, or they want to repeal the Seventeenth Amendment, uh, or they want to make the Senate uh, directly uh, elected by the people by population rather than apportioning two senators to each state. There's all kinds. There's all kinds of these theories, uh, and then there's of course people out there who uh, don't think anything should change, and they think everything is perfect the way it is, uh, and. So we are going to be taking a look at some of those arguments about, uh, you know, should any changes be made, uh, what should be kept, why should it be kept, and then looking at suggestions of things that people say should be changed, and looking at whether they are a good idea or a bad idea uh, in the context of this constitutional American republicanism that we were talking about today. So. Anyways, I I really do want to thank you very much for tuning in today uh, and checking out the channel. I really hope that you enjoyed this, Uh, and so I have been, uh, as always, Locky and Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, and as always, De Linda as Carthago.